Welcome to the podcast, How to Run and Grow Your Solo Patent Practice with Anant Kataria and Fez Wahid of Sagacious IP. This is a one-of-its-kind podcast focused on existing and aspiring solo or small patent practitioners, interviewing successful solo or small patent practitioners, and bringing to you proven, actionable insights to start, build, and grow your patent practice. Learn firsthand how to acquire, serve, and retain clients for long-term success. All this while effectively juggling the multiple roles that one has to play as a solo or small patent practitioner. If you run a solo or small patent practice or are planning to start one, whether you're currently in a mid-size or big law firm or coming fresh out of law school, this podcast series will help you learn from the successful ones who have faced and overcome the challenges you are dealing with. So let's get into the podcast with your hosts, Anant Kataria and Fez Wahid. Welcome to today's episode of How to Run and Grow a Solo Patent Practice. Our guest for today is Philip Fergang of Fergang and Edward LLP. Phil runs his law firm practice focused on IP and entertainment law from offices in Manhattan, New York, White Plains, and West Nyack, New York. Phil has had a long career, 22 years out of which have been at Fergang and Edward IP. Uh, Phil has co-authored a book on patent prosecution in 2014. He is frequently invited as a speaker uh, for lectures on IP law, litigation tactics, litigation ethics before professional organizations such as NYIPLA, INTA, and ABA. He's been interviewed as an expert by NBC, CNBC, CN, CNN, WABC, uh, the German First Channel, the PBC, and you know publications uh, uh, including the Wall Street Journal. So uh, between 2007 and 2014, he has been recognized four times as New York super lawyer for IP. So let's take this conversation forward with Phil and learn from him, from his experiences on how to run and grow a solo patent practice. Hi, Phil. Welcome to our podcast. Pleasure to be here. Great. Nice having you here. Thank you. So, uh, Phil, uh, would you tell us a bit about Fergang and Edward and and more importantly, your story before Fergang and Edward, it'll, uh, I've spoken to you before and it's, it, I found it pretty interesting. I'm sure the uh, listeners would like it too. Well, I, I started my career out of, uh, well, first of all, I started my career as an, en- as an electrical engineer and went to law school uh, at, the, at the same time. When I graduated and became a lawyer from law school and graduated and became a lawyer, I worked in-house in corporations like the RCA, with uh, Radio Corporation of America, and then um, with Litton Industries. And I decided then to go on my own as a sole practitioner. Uh, and I was in that capacity until, um, let's see, at least, at least 30 years, and then, and then formed a partnership uh, with uh, Stephanie Fergang Adwar, who was also my daughter. What specifically would you like me to focus on in terms of uh, going forward with a practice? Well, a couple of things I would strongly recommend to anyone starting their own practice is to join uh, all of the relevant professional organizations that they uh, that that would be important to them for the standpoint of keeping up with the practice of law and also uh, to make contacts. I can recall a number of years ago, I went to a lecture 
and uh, it was a, a, about uh, 200 lawyers listening to this lecture on how to how to run a legal practice. And the speaker said, how many here have ever referred a client out because it was either not your area, uh, there was a conflict. Every hand in the room went up. <laughs> and, and that was a lesson to me because I had never understood before until that point that that's, that was a source of business for us lawyers, other lawyers. So making connection with your colleagues, either in your own area of practice or in any other practice is usually very, very important. Right. That's, that's very interesting. Yeah, Phil, actually you talked about referral and I'm glad that you brought up that point because uh, I, I noticed that this was one of the key sources of creating new business uh, for you. And uh, it's quite exciting to see this particular thing being pointed out because we have been doing some of these podcasts uh, and we have talked with uh, different, uh, you know, solo practitioners and, and you find everybody has a focus on certain thing and probably that is what makes them really successful. Uh, would you really call referrals being one of the key, let's say, unique things that really helped you uh, in your journey as a solo practitioner? What did, what helped me as a solo practitioner? Uh, <laughs> the the uh, the referrals that you were getting for your colleagues because of the networks and connections. Yeah, you should, you should do. I would tell anyone starting out in this in this area as a as a yeah. as a lawyer to try to uh, find uh, audiences before whom you could speak, whether they're colleagues or the general public. If if one is an attorney, uh, let's say in an area, uh, my area is a very specialized area, it's intellectual property law. But uh, someone who is a general lawyer, a generalist, would want to reach out to be known in the community that they're available. Also in this day of the internet, they could uh, make their, uh, their presence known on the internet as well. But public speaking, I mean, assuming this pandemic is over fairly soon, uh, speaking, public speaking is very important because it, uh, it it gives you the stature of someone who knows the area of law that, with which you're dealing and also allows the, the, the relevant public to connect with you. This is the person I want to hire. Uh, with respect to um, people like me in, in specialized areas like intellectual property or admiralty law or sim, sim, similar specialties, there I would reach out to the professional organizations and look to participate. It's very important for, for for us lawyers to be kept up to date on what's going on. We attend, we are all required, many countries and specifically the United States requires continuing legal education. And that is an opportunity to just educate yourself in particular areas in your practice and then offer yourself as a speaker. And the easiest way of doing that is to of course, join the professional organizations and the committees that set up for speakers. And uh, you'll find that they'll, they'll want you to, to speak because they need speakers to address these issues and the busier lawyers aren't going to do it. They're, they're busy. This, this is very, very interesting input, Phil. Uh, I mean, it's, it's quite unique. I mean, uh, we've been to meetings of such organizations like AIPLA and AIPPI. Uh, and, and I think it's quite true. People who are active in committees are more visible and someone who's attending their 
let's say someone in an IP practice, but in a different technology area, sees you as a speaker in a particular technology area, there are high chances of them referring uh, the client to you if they have something in your area. Yeah. So, and and this is quite interesting because we haven't this as an opportunity from uh, from other customers, other uh, people who've been on the podcast. I'm sure this is. Uh, an insight people can learn from. So, so one of the questions uh, we've been asked, or our uh, listeners would like to know, is that when anyone you know starts uh, a new practice in law, and especially if it's bootstrapped, let's say if you're starting it with your own funds, there are li- uh, you know limits to the resources that you can deploy for doing all the things that you have to do. You have to sell the services, you know, bring in clients prepare and deliver uh, the work and uh, you know all the other aspects of running the program so how how, how did uh, you know what challenges did you face uh, when you were in you have to appreciate that when i started there was no internet uh, <laughs> so it's an entirely different picture today because there's better communication today than there was when i started uh, if i was starting today i would say the first thing you would want to do is get yourself a web page. Uh, go to a go to a. It, it'll cost a few dollars, but go to a, a a company that does this as a line of their business and make sure that they've done web pages for other lawyers in the area in which you're working, mm-hmm. so that they can design web and and look at those web pages before you engage them, so that they can design pages that meet your your interest and your clientele's interest. That would be the first thing. The second thing that you, you'd want to do, uh, well, one of the things I would tell you not to do, and this, this uh, every lawyer I've ever talked to, including and in personal experience, is try not to represent your family. There's nothing like sitting down for a family dinner when somebody is sitting all around you and some cousin says, you know, you, you handled that contract very badly. You, you don't need that. <laughs> <laughs> So what you're best best off doing in this situation, you know, I'm not talking about situations where somebody really needs help immediately and you're there on the scene, but generally speaking, try not to get into that. But other than that, in addition to to, uh, getting into contact that way, there are other things you can do which will make your practice easier. Among them are See, look at the letters you're writing. Look at the contracts you're, you're writing for clients. And say, as you go through them, uh, you'll see a pattern develop. And that pattern of letters to administrative agencies, to judges, wherever, uh, courts, will follow a pattern. And through that pattern, you can make forms, your own forms, of what you will need to, to use over and over again. That will save time and make your labors easier. Uh, so, for example, uh, in, in I have on my in our uh, server we have uh, complaints that we've written before. We have uh, letters to uh, people. Let's say somebody is a trademark infringer. We have I've written trademark infringement letters, demand letters. So it's all written. I don't have to keep rewriting those letters and rethinking them. And it also improves your practice. So if this is the 50th time you've done a, uh, a confidentiality agreement, it's going to be a much better agreement that some, than someone can find on the internet. 
And that's what I really what I'm talking about. You want to simplify, you want to systemize and simplify your practice. And that, in addition to getting out and meeting as many people as you can to, to uh, not, not now, not in the pandemic, but when it's over. It's a very uh, useful piece of advice uh, on the technology front, uh, you know, uh, one uh, external, which is on the website front and, and one which is internal, which helps you improve your practice. So. Now, a couple of other things I'd like to add to that. Ah, okay. Uh, when you're starting out, it is usually very difficult to afford uh, legal services like in the United States, we have Westlaw and LexisNexis, which are research services. If that is the case, there should be in your general area uh, law libraries and uh, usually bar associations have them. And you can go to the law libraries and use their facilities or go to a local nearby college or university and see if they can provide that for you to save that expense. It's not as convenient. It is not as efficient as if you have those, um, those services for yourself. But if, you're, if your finances are tight, that's a good way of, of, of getting that information for your own needs. That's another thing that you want to look into. Right. And um, I think going to uh, the side of uh, the customers, we also see that uh, uh, your practice uh, uh, has a uh, substantial amount of, uh, uh, you know, it has a diversified customer base, but then you serve a lot of SMEs, the small and medium enterprises. Uh, When you work with such enterprises, do you see the, uh, any difference from like large corporations or individual inventors? Do Does the small and medium enterprise uh, have different challenges? Well, I've never thought of the larger companies that we represent and the smaller companies as being any different. I treat them, I treat them equally. The one area of concern that, that any practicing lawyer is going to have is the potential client that wants, doesn't want to be your client, just wants the services for free. And you're best off telling them that uh, we must firm, in effect, we, we must first form the relationship of attorney-client, then I can give you advice. Now, in the United States, there's an ethical rule that if a lawyer is talking to a person, say, at a party, and the person says, well, I had this problem, and the attorney, being sociable about it, starts to answer that question or give advice. In the United States, in New York, that you just formed an attorney-client relationship. And if for some reason the advice is misconstrued or an error was made, you can be sued for malpractice, which brings me to another point. Do not practice law in private practice where you're representing a multiplicity of clients without having an errors and omission policy, otherwise known as a malpractice policy. Absolutely do not do that because uh, you'll find, frankly, you're going to find there are people out there, businesses out there, who when they've obtained your services um, and have paid for those services will turn around and sue you for malpractice, even if you've done nothing wrong. That's, uh, I think, a valuable piece of uh, advice for somebody starting up, yeah. Yeah, you you really have to be very careful. Um, I've seen the situation. I do a, a good deal of lecturing on legal ethics, and uh, I've seen situations. Thank God it never happened to me or my firm, where someone called, uh, someone uh, came to a, a, to a, an attorney, and essentially was setting the attorney up for a lawsuit. 
In other words, so one thing that you want to do is you want to memorialize the advice you're giving, even if it's a, a, a one line or a key line that leads uh, advice that you've given to others. Let me give you an example. Somebody contacts you and says, uh, can I use such and such a trademark? And you look over the trademark and it is not really a trademark, just as a matter of law. This is not a trademark. If you tell that person, I don't recommend that you use this because it can't really serve as a trademark, you should pick another mark. You want to write that down someplace, either in an email to the client or in a memo to your file, because in this way, you know what you've said. And if a year or two later, something comes up and the individual swears you told him something differently, you have a memorandum of that. It's a very important thing to have in your practice. <laughs> so keep everything documented. Huh? Yeah, it, it, it's, uh, it, it goes by the initial, what is called uh, PYA, which means protect your you-know-what. <laughs> uh, it, it really is important. And in fact, when you give opinion letters as a starting attorney, if you give opinion letters to somebody, any client, you should couch it on the basis of this is an opinion, in, in essence, that there are other opinions. So you, you should have in that letter you should not you should never say to a client you should absolutely not do this what you should say is in my opinion you should not do this in other words leaving the leaving the way open that there could be other opinions yeah this is quite this is very interesting uh, both the points about the errors and omissions policy uh, as well as uh, this point of documenting everything and keeping a record of uh, what you've recommended to your customers so that that doesn't backfire so uh so what we've also heard uh, as a question from our customers or other practitioners uh, uh or as a challenge that they face is that when they are in a new practice or in a fresh practice or a smaller practice they are juggling a lot of roles so they are getting new clients they're also you know working on you know aspects that are non-billable uh, and then there is also the main work of delivering the billable work uh, to your customers. So how how did you manage that? So as uh, you know, majority of of your career being in uh, your own practice, uh, did you face such challenges as well? And how did you manage that? Uh, I did face that that challenge, and it does take a lot of work uh, to. Uh, put yourself in a position where you're you're following each each ball that's in the air stays in the air but one thing i failed to make mention of earlier and i think it's vitally important if you're a young lawyer starting out and you want to be in your own practice which is what i've done most of my life i would strongly recommend go get a job as an associate in a law firm and maybe not just one firm, but switch jobs after a while to other firms. I'm not telling you to uh, resign from a firm just for the sake of resignation. If you find a home in a, in a law firm and you like where you are, by all means, stay. But if not, be prepared to, to switch firms. And by that, you will learn how the, these firms practice and the practical aspects of practicing. That is invaluable um, for your for your knowledge of what to do as a lawyer going forward. Now, once you've passed through that and you feel you're now ready to go on your own, and there's a learning curve, by the way. Law schools teach you the law. They don't necessarily teach you how to practice the law. 
And practicing the law is you learn by just doing it. In the area of intellectual property rights, wherever you are in the world, and whatever you are, if you are an IP lawyer, you are learning that from another lawyer. You learn the law of IP in your law school, but you're not going to learn how to practice it uh, in the law school. They don't teach that. At least in my experience, I've never come across a law school any place in the world that will teach a lawyer how to practice law. You need mentoring. And I would look for that. And if you want to then go on your own, by all means do so, but at least you'll have that background. You'll see what records they keep, how they keep them, how they run their docketing, what type of files they use, and all these little practical things, what their sources are for everything from file folders to research services. And, and all of these will give you an idea of what you want to do and how to do it as you go forward. Okay. This is, this is an interesting advice too. Uh, Faz, do you want to take the next one? Yeah. So um, I think the, what what Phil was saying, I think it's very <laughs> useful uh, advice in terms of, uh, you know, uh, how do you manage your, your practice? Because that is something that you need to uh, learn. And if you are a solo practitioner from the very start, I am sure Philip has learned from, <laughs> you know, uh, by himself. Uh, uh, but what he's advising is to actually have some experience working with somebody else so that you actually know how to uh, manage your own firm when you decide to actually go for a solo practice. Uh, I went to work for law firms. After I left the corporations, I went and worked at, at uh, two different or three different law firms, and then I went on my own. And it was some experience because uh, I learned not only how to practice law, but how not to practice law. I saw practices by attorneys in uh, at least one of the firms where I, I vowed I'd never do that to a client. So you can learn quite a bit by that. Also, the, most, the other thing that you want to do is, uh, as a young attorney starting out, in anything that you do, you want to keep not only uh, records and memorialization, as I, we, I spoke to a few minutes ago, but you also want to keep a, a, a docket sheet, a docket sheet or docket sheets that can be on a computer. It can be in paper. It doesn't really matter. What that is, is a list of projects, uh, their due dates, where you stand and what, what are the upcoming dates. The, the, the greatest area of errors for lawyers is not acting in sufficient time. Uh, and that is vitally important. Right. And uh, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, uh, customers that you have worked with, uh, have you also experienced uh, 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 customers uh, who are very difficult to work with? Uh, uh, or... Yes. Yes. And uh, one thing, uh, one, a couple of very, uh, very important points along that line. If you have a client that lies to you, get rid of the client. Now, if, how do you get rid of a client? If you say to a client, get out of my office, or I'm not going to work for you anymore, you're going to have a fight and you're going to have problems. You'll even have the situations if you pursue that line where the client is going to go and try to sue you for really, they'll feel insulted. The best way of handling a, a difficult client situation is to say to the client, as the situation arises, which and the situation which in and of itself makes things difficult is to say to the client you know i think you might be happier with another lawyer uh, in this way in this way 
you're, what, you're not saying I'm firing you I, or I'm getting rid of you or you're a pain in the you-know-what and I don't want to do business with you. What you're saying to them is, look, we're, effectively we're not getting along. You need somebody that you can communicate with. Uh, this is especially true when you find that there, there, and there are people out there who will just lie. And in the end, that, that person can get you into difficulty with courts or with other with uh, with people you're negotiating with for them. You always want to be in that position where the, you're dealing with the client. Where I had a situation with a with a client that I told him told his him and his company. But fortunately, I had a colleague with me at the time, another person in my firm. But I expressly told him that if it, they did X, Y, or Z. They would get into they would they would find themselves in a difficult situation. Well, they went out and did X, Y, and Z, and then came back to me and said, "You told me I could do that." Fortunately, I had both the memo to my file and my colleague, and I said, "No, this is what we told you, and here's the record of our conversation." If they did, if I had not had that, they would have certainly come after me, and that's a very important lesson. For difficult clients, you don't want them if they're dishonest to you. The other thing is this. A lawyer has, at least in the United States, I can't speak to other countries on this, but at least in the United States, a lawyer has an ethical obligation to represent anybody within their field of competence. But if the client is somebody who you morally can't represent, you are, you are within your rights to turn the client away. But as I said before, when you do it, do it diplomatically. You would be happier with other counsel. Right. I think all these things uh, are summing up into a very insightful uh, talk. Uh, I'm sure our listeners will really benefit from from these insights. You talked about, uh, um, you know, um, joining relevant professional organizations uh, for somebody who's starting up and making connections in their area of practice so that they can find uh, confidence. Oh, I'll, they... I'll add, may I add one thing to that? Yeah, yeah please go ahead. There is a, a real need for lawyers in the what, what is called the pro bono area. Those are free services. Right. Uh, I, In fact, I myself am a member of a board of directors and the free lawyer for a charitable organization. Mm -hmm. and, and I do recommend that very strenuously. First of all, it, it does well for the profession that lawyers are out there offering these services. Right. In, this, in the present pandemic, uh, the bar associations of which I'm a member, I know are doing a great deal of work for free for people who are victimized by this pandemic. And I have, I have in the past participated in that context when there has been a, a massive disaster of one form or another, like a hurricane or something like that. It, that's important too, because it not only aids you, the, the starting lawyer, in making a way for yourself in the profession and, and building a practice for yourself, it also helps the profession as a whole. Right, yeah, and and that keeps you grounded and and also contributing to to other areas of, of life. And the right? and the other thing I would add to that briefly is always be courteous to your adversary. Uh, mm -hmm. You are there to represent 
the client's interest, you are not the client. The client got the got itself or himself or herself into a problem area, maybe not of their own doing, but no matter what, you are not the client. The other side of it is don't ever, even though you think you know exact and may very well know exactly what the client should be doing in their business, don't put yourself into their shoes. That's their area. You make recommendations, but only as counsel. And don't try to be the don't try to be the lawyer and the businessman. You will inevitably get into trouble. Okay, never be the lawyer uh, and the businessman. So I think that is a very good point on which we can actually now close uh, the session. Um, I I I'm really glad and thankful for for uh, for you to join us and. Um, um, yeah and if uh, our audience wishes to reach out to you what is a good way to contact well um i'll give you my email and i'll give you uh, uh phone numbers that they can reach me at uh, they can contact me at philip with one l p h i l i p at furgang f as in frank u r g a n g furgang.com my name.com and they can also, um, they can uh, write to me uh, if they want to write a letter. They can write to um, me at Fergang and Adwar, A-D-W-A-R. That's my partner. And we are at 515 Madison Avenue, Suite 6W, New York, New York, uh, 10022. Uh, they can also, uh, let's see, we've got emails. I guess they could look me up on Facebook or LinkedIn very easily. Just put in my name. <laughs> right. Now, thank you so much for sharing all these insights and also sharing your contact details. Um, I'm sure a lot of people who are thinking of going solo will really benefit from your advice. Well, they can make they, 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 for doing us. I'm open for any any lawyer, any place that wants to contact me. It's always been a matter of the practice of my firm uh, in our area of specialization or otherwise uh, to call or, uh, oh, I, I didn't give you a phone number. Let me give you that. 212-725-1818, uh, 212-725-1818. And... Uh, because of the pandemic, they will probably have to leave a message and then uh, it will get to me and I will get back to them. But um, we're always open to that and always willing to help. Wonderful. Thank you. That's a great note to, clo uh, to finish on. So thanks a lot. Have a good day. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the podcast, How to Run and Grow Your Solo Patent Practice, with your hosts Anant Kataria and Fez Wahid from Sagacious IP. If you enjoyed this episode, please do rate it and listen to more episodes in the series. For more information about supporting your practice with external resources, write to us at info at sagaciousresearch.com. Please do note that the contents of this podcast were intended for general informational purposes only. The views of the guests and hosts were their personal views and do not represent sagacious IP. The facts of every legal matter are unique, and the content of this podcast should not be considered as offering legal advice for your specific legal situation. The preceding information may be considered attorney advertisement and does not establish an attorney-client relationship.